Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I'm your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined today by the host of the Monsters Among Us podcast. He is also on the panel of experts for Travel Channel's Paranormal Caught on Camera, and he's been hard at work with David Flora of the Blurry Photos and Hysteria 51 podcasts on a documentary about the Borrego Triangle called Shadows in the Desert. Derek Hayes, welcome to the podcast, man. Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's a great honor to have you here, man. And uh, I, I, I tell you, like, you seem to be like one of the most like steady people. And what I mean by that is it, it seems like nothing can like shake you in any way. Like, so I want to know, like, of, from the time that you've started Monsters Among Us, what is the most scared that you've ever been listening to a call that you've received? Oh, man. Uh <laughs> Scared is is a choice word there. I, yeah, I don't, yeah. Un, unsettled would be the better word because I, yes. don't, I don't know that anything's actually frightened me because these things happen elsewhere. They're not happening in the room I'm sitting in. But mm-hmm. there's there have been a handful of, uh, I, I guess, like life after death sort of calls where somebody sees an apparition of somebody that just died moments before. They have a quick communication with somebody right before, uh, and and there's two of them that come to mind, and I can I can give you a a brief synopsis if you if you want but there's two of yeah. them that that kind of yeah. shut me down for the evening when i heard these calls the first one took place in, in my home state of ohio uh, and it was a, a gentleman driving and in the back seat was his little boy and they drove past a cemetery and it was one of these cemeteries where the stones kind of sit flush to the ground they're not you know sticking up out of the ground so it doesn't look like a cemetery and this little boy is 3 years old something like that and Sure enough, the boy's like, look at all those people. And he kind of points to the field where the cemetery is. And he starts describing all these people that are just standing around. And the thing that really got me is uh, the little boy goes, there sure are a lot of grandmas. And the dad's like, I looked over. There was nobody in the cemetery. It was completely empty. And it doesn't even look like a cemetery. So that one freaked me out. And Mm -hmm. then a couple years later, I got a call from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, A young lady was driving to work one morning, and she came upon a fatal car accident on the freeway. And as she passed, she was kind of looking at the mangled mess and everything. And suddenly she looks over and there's a woman in her passenger seat that wasn't there moments before. And the woman looks just as shocked as the witness did. And they kind of exchange back and forth. Uh, you know, what are you doing here? What's happening? And, and finally, the witness is like, you know, I think you died. You know, I think you just passed away in that accident. And the woman just looked solemn, like she was upset. And suddenly the skies opened up and she just vanished into a white light. And those two stories, for some reason, uh, you know, I'm a monster guy. Monsters are my favorite. But those two stories really unsettled me. Uh, Yeah, I could totally see how that would unsettle anybody, especially when you're, you know, dealing with the topic of life after death and uh, how heavy a topic that can be. Yeah, Yeah, I could totally understand how that would definitely, you know, rattle the cages a little bit. It affects every one of us. I mean, we're all going to experience it at some point. So it's something we're all going to have to face. And 
Yeah, the older I get, the more I think about calls like that. It's less about the Bigfoot in the woods and more about, you know, what happens after the last breath. Yeah, exactly. Like, all that uncertainty just coming forth and, you know, sometimes people see ghosts that just remind us that we're going to end up there at some point. Hopefully... It's not that bad, but again, when you're left with a question, uh, like we always seem to be, it it can be deeply unsettling. (laughs) Well, I can only hope that I do end up as a ghost somewhere, you know, rattling the halls of some ancient building or a stretch of woods or something, just haunting something. That's that's my life goal. That's the life goal. (laughs) That's the life goal right there. I appreciate that because, like, uh, you know, what if... You know, when you do die, you clock in at, uh, you know, the afterlife and they send you off to some, you know, property someplace else that you've never been to. And, uh, you know, you've got to haunt that thing for the rest of your life or until somebody decides that you need to move on. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I am digging this afterlife that I'm building for myself now. <laughs> We all have plans, right? <laughs> yes, we absolutely do. Uh, today, uh, we're going to freak you out a little bit. We're going to freak nice. you out a little bit because we're talking about hostile UFOs. And, you know, we, we've I've kind of covered some of them uh, before. We, ta- we talked about the Colaris flap in Brazil in 1977 when a bunch of different uh, types of UFOs would kind of uh, shoot beams down at people that made them sick. Uh, We have uh, talked about um, the Falcon Lake incident, which, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, a UFO farted on Stefan Mikulak. That's the only way (laughs) I can see it. Uh, (laughs) I can still see that Unsolved Mysteries segment playing over and over in my head. It was brilliant. Yes, yes, it was the uh, you know, and I will say the uh, special effects on that UFO not too bad for yeah. the early nineties. Yeah, I, I was convinced as probably a twelve or thirteen year old watching that originally. Yes, absolutely, uh, same, absolutely same, um, and and a lot of what the, the stories that you're going to get here today are kind of offbeat. They're not as well known. In the first case. That we're talking about here is that of Almiro Martins de Freitas, a 31-year-old night watchman at the Barajem du Fenil hydroelectric power plant. And uh, he had taken the job in 1959 after getting married, and he basically left behind a potential career as a pilot in the Brazilian Air Force. But uh, we're shooting to 1970, and on the afternoon... Of August 30th, it had been uh, a rainy one. Uh, Almiro, he reported to work, and uh, he basically just walked the property, kind of inspected the dam uh, every so often on a normal routine. Uh, And the dam was located right next to the Parabia River. And um, he was inspecting some transformers, moving from building to building, walking along the ravine. Uh, and when he had made his first kind of uh, round of inspections, he returned to the substation, phoned the powerhouse, identified himself, and, um, you know, 
basically told him what he was doing. So, uh, you know, this was a cold night that the rain had dropped the temperature significantly and uh, he grabbed some coffee to warm himself up a little bit and decided to uh, smoke a cigarette. He then moved behind the substation, which led to these nearby barracks. And, and when he neared that location, Almiro, he heard this loud banging on the Transformers, causing sparks to fall to the ground. And, and, and this was nothing out of the ordinary. And he continued on inspecting the barracks before returning to the substation for another cigarette. And then he heard another bang, uh, sounding different from the last that he had heard. Uh, the mercury lamps kind of flickered briefly, and he looked out the window to uh, locate the cause, and at first he couldn't find one. And then on the second look through, though, a row of lights caught his attention, um, and they were kind of just blinking on and off in this, like, uniform pattern. So Almiro moved in for a closer look. He, he left the comfort of the barracks, and um, uh, he uh, he could see that this whatever this was was a solid object of some kind, and he kind of just got got down close to the ground, started to crawl forward, and he noticed that there were fifteen rectangular portholes, one meter wide and eighty centimeters tall, uh, and each of the the corners of these windows was rounded. So Almiro. He pulls out his gun, you know, it seems like a logical move here. Uh, you know, you're, you're the security for this dam. So you pull out the gun and uh, it's probably a one bullet in it, right? Uh, you would think, but uh, he does have, <laughs> he does have a few, but uh, uh, he's, he's going to get off one shot here. And instead of hearing the bullet ricochet off the surface, the object just grew very intensely bright, and it started to oscillate very quickly. Mm -hmm. And this deafening noise joined the flashing lights. And after a second shot, uh, the third the, and a third, the uh, beam of light emitted from the side of the structure, and a light so intense uh, that he had to actually close his eyes. So Al Almiro could just feel this intense wave of heat run through his body as the beam made contact, and it, follow it was followed by a numbness and a tingling sensation. Uh, and his body just became stiff and rigid. He was paralyzed to the spot. Um, so, Derek, in, in a situation like this, would you be pulling your gun if you were in the situation like that? And if you had one, would you be shooting at a UFO? <laughs> I think this guy made a grave error. Uh, <laughs> no, I think that's unwise to to shoot at a UFO. You have no idea what it is. Let's just pretend for a second that it's a government vehicle and you're over here taking cracks at it. Not a smart move. Now, no. let's imagine it's traveled from another galaxy somewhere the the intelligence is there there's technology there that we can't even fathom and he's basically throwing lead rocks at this thing bad idea real bad idea absolutely so this warmth running through his body was all of a sudden replaced with a cooling sensation which uh you know is that where he pissed his pants <laughs> uh, <laughs> sweat and probably piss sweat and piss <laughs> a natural response i'm, I'm sure to a situation Yo, yeah. like that Oh, yeah. Like, 
uh, you know, I'm sweating just thinking about it right now. You know? <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's sweating profusely from all of this, and from top to bottom, he's kind of starts to regain function of all his limbs. And then all of the lights went out, and when he opened his eyes again, found that uh, he actually couldn't see anything. Um, so he called out for help. And moments later, a car appeared and rushed him to a physician. But unfortunately, they were unable to find one, which is, it's unfortunate. It's a problem. Like, you need to have that physician on hand. But um, uh, instead, they basically rushed him back to the head office at the dam, where he spent the rest of his night there uh, until he could be taken into the city for special treatment. So... Not only did he not receive treatment at the time, but he had to wait, like, uh, I think it was like seven hours uh, before he just. I can just picture him in the back room just wailing in in agony, and they're Mm -hmm. in the front office just filling out paperwork. (laughs) You know, the shift's not over yet. Sorry. Sorry. uh, uh, What's his name? Alamero or? uh, (laughs) Alamero, yeah. Sorry, pal. <laughs> you just got to hold on. <laughs> yeah, and now uh, they're also changing the board that says uh, a number of days since last <laughs> UFO attack to zero. And, you know, it's unfortunate. <laughs> and now they have to make PSAs about shooting at UFOs. There's a lot yep. There's a lot of paperwork and back-end work that needs to be done now thanks to this decision. Yep. Yeah, so much paperwork. Typical. That's that's the number one lesson here, folks. If you shoot at a UFO, there's going to be so much paperwork. Think about <laughs> the person that has to fill all that out. You don't want that for them. You really don't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in, in the wake of his experience, uh, Almiro found it difficult to move and hear, and his blindness kind of remained. In fact, his blindness would stick with him for about 14 days. Wow. Um, On September 1st, he testified in front of the SESVI, or the Special Service of of Security and Vigilance. I dig that. I I dig any organization that puts vigilance in their their title. It's just absolutely fantastic. It commands authority, for sure. He found he couldn't uh, really eat, and I, I can only imagine if you can't smell how much that's going to totally mess with you when you're when you're trying to eat and he also had balance issues so he, he first received medical treatment in the town of uh, Santa Casa de Resende but had to be transferred due to insurance issues which uh, I mean you know <laughs> we, we encounter that problem <laughs> the, the perils the of the medical industry yeah yes. <laughs> this wasn't yes. even in the states this was you said Brazil right <laughs> yes. Exactly. Uh, You know, it's good to know that we are not the only ones struggling with our medical bills. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This guy had to wait seven hours and then his insurance didn't cover UFO uh, attack or whatever we want to call this thing. This guy's having a hell of an evening here. He really is. He absolutely is. So um, ultimately, he was transferred to Hospital da Cruz Vermela in Rio de Janeiro. And under the care of Dr. Orlandino Fonseca, he ran a number of tests and stated, quote, The patient suffers from psychogenic blindness, 
blindness caused by emotional shock without eye injuries. He is undergoing treatment uh, preparatory to the investigative examinations of the causes that motivated the violent shock that he received. His body is functioning normally. It is possible that as of next Monday, he will be able to receive another type of treatment. For the moment, he will remain isolated for reasons of medical security. Uh, so, in in this situation, it's interesting because you could draw a parallel to this doctor's diagnosis to um, Dr. Benjamin Simon's diagnosis of Betty and Barney Hill, uh, because that was kind of his specialty. He, he treated soldiers coming back from the front in World War II with hysterical blindness and stuff like that so it, it we're in a similar type of situation and mm-hmm. he did in fact use hypnosis to treat almiro in this case getting to kind of the root of what he uh saw what he was suffering from probably not to the extent that betty and barney hill did they did um their hypnosis regression over like the period of months uh, and across multiple sessions, but uh, I th- think Almiro here uh, basically did it once, and um, it wasn't totally helpful. It took him a little bit of time to regain his vision, so he started to really kind of be able to discern things other than blobs and, you know, shadowy shapes on about September 13th. Wow. And... Like, I, I, that's like, I can't even, I, I don't even want to think about that. As someone, as, as, as two people, you know, with glasses here, like, this is, this is, it's unsettling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because you don't know if it's going to come back. I mean, maybe at the time the doctors thought it was part of this uh, shock to his body, but you don't know. You don't know for no. sure. Is his sight going to come back? So for, like you said, 14 days, he's basically wondering, you know, how big did I screw up? <laughs> yeah. How bad did I did I screw up here? Exactly. And uh, he was later discharged from the hospital uh, by um, around September 14th. And uh, he actually received a promotion, which good, because the guy deserves a promotion. He, he saved your damn from a UFO, let's be honest. <laughs> Uh, he actually ended up becoming a security instructor for the Special Security and Internal Surveillance Service, uh, which was the company that uh, had hired him. And hmm. what's interesting here is that we have follow-up sightings of UFOs over the dam. Uh, another UFO was spotted a week after... Almiro's encounter, and this object was observed by six witnesses. Uh, all of them worked as uh, security personnel at the dam. Uh, an object that bore, yeah, yeah. It's 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 always interesting when you can get that kind of confirmation of uh, you know people. Your your coworkers have now seen what you have seen. You yeah. are suddenly less crazy. <laughs> But also, you know, once you start unraveling that, the questions really start flowing. Why the attraction to the dam? What is there that's bringing these craft, you know, to this location? What, what's the significance? And yeah. the whole time I'm thinking through my head, is there something under the water? You know, we hear about these underwater UFO bases or USO bases, uh, some sort of mineral perhaps that there's 
that they're after that's that's in that area who knows yeah exactly uh we uh we released an episode uh just this past week in which this one woman uh had a visitor in her home it was in uh it was a uh a spaceman who kind of just appeared in her home looked like a kind of like a television image and mm-hmm. explained to her that uh he and his cohorts were on earth looking for something called tidium uh which uh later became titanium and apparently he was they were mining it at the bottom of the ocean which i could tell you after you know with the, the basic google research that uh any uh podcaster does that it is a terrible place to find titanium <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know much about it, but I was wondering if you even mined for titanium. Is it something that's created, or uh, I, you know, I don't know a lot about it. Yeah, there. It's kind of uh, it's rich, kind of in like uh, earth crust um, and and in certain areas, but uh, in the ocean, uh, on you know, like the ocean floor, not a really good place to find it. But according to Google. There is like one parts per billion titanium in the actual water. So I don't know, maybe using the water, uh, but again, terrible source for it. <laughs> now, wouldn't it be wild if, you know, 20 years in the future, there's suddenly a, a discovery that there's tons of deposits of titanium under certain parts of the ocean or something like that? Yeah. So, suddenly yeah. those claims, you know, they hold water. Yeah, I, and I'm gonna have to eat my words. I'm gonna have to. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna have to uh, come on to this podcast, and uh, you know, I'm gonna have a retraction. <laughs> that's that's but, part of the job, I think. A, a yeah, welcomed part of the job. Whenever we have to do that, typically it's a good thing, right? Yeah, generally, uh, it's always good <laughs> when uh, you know new information comes forward. Uh, you know, we have unsolved mysteries uh, as our guide. You know, when when things change, you come out with it, uh, and and that's and that's what we'll do if we do discover uh, t- titanium, a decent amount of it at the bottom of the ocean. So. Uh, this object, it was kind of, uh, it bore these red, green, and yellow lights, and it flew between the mountains, changing colors, and they described it kind of like a plane without wings, and they observed it land pretty far away from them, and then saw it take off and disappear rapidly. And there's also, you know, a week after Almiro's encounter, a woman outside of Belo Horizonte, which is in... Uh, southern Brazil, like Belo Horizonte, is kind of a hot spot for UFOs. It comes up a lot in UFO reports. And uh, she was walking on a ro- road towards home when she saw this like light descending towards her, and she could feel this intense heat coming from uh, this object, and uh, it ended up like hitting her body. She turned quickly and was able to discern this kind of lantern-shaped object about 50 meters away from her. And she quickly turned back around and just continued home. And creepily enough, this UFO followed her for about 15 minutes before disappearing. Wow. Yeah. That's unsettling. And that's when you do shoot at the UFO. After it's been following you for 15 minutes, that's when you fire a shot or two, you know, chase it off. 
Get out of here. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Get some warning shots. Don't don't hit it directly because you know it's it's only gonna make matters worse. Uh, that is an important lesson <laughs> to take from this case right here. Um, she ended up suffering from blindness, headaches, and chills, and her clothes were singed, and she also had kind of these like burn marks on her back. So yeah, like. Hmm. Don't mess there's with the, the UFOs. There's the <laughs> blindness again. And, you know, this reminds yeah. me of another hostile UFOs, the Cash Landrum event. Mm-hmm. Uh, from yeah. What, when was that? Uh, late 70s, I believe. Uh, uh, 1980. Yeah. Oh, 1980. Okay. Uh, yep. You know, there was burns and all kinds of things associated with that. I'm not super familiar with the case, but, you know, th- there were burns with the two women that were there. And I think the little boy was also affected. Um, yep. So, so, you know, there's there's... Information out there that corroborates some of this stuff anyway. Yeah, absolutely. There are definitely cases that confirm this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, some of this is definitely going to, uh, you know, seem familiar um, after a while. um, Because there are other similar cases uh, in this case. And uh, two years before... Almiro's encounter on July 25th, 1968, soldiers outside of Oliveria, Argentina, were told of a UFO in the immediate area by some nearby local residents. And they quickly, their corporal in charge, decided to order a detachment to the area to find them. And they drove up on a UFO that had landed and was casting out an intense beam of light. And three tall human-like beings emerged from the craft, and the corporal ordered them to surrender, basically. And when they didn't acknowledge his words, the soldiers raised their arms, and you you guessed it, they began firing. Here we go. (laughs) Yep. Which uh, had no effect on either the beings or the UFO. And now they're all blind. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a tale. It's all this time. <laughs> so I'm sensing uh, a pattern here. Uh, yeah, you know, there's definitely we're dealing in patterns uh, today. Um, uh, this is from an article written by Joan Cruxells. Uh, "Quote: Then the beings raised one of their hands, in which they had a lumin- in which they had luminous spheres, which paralyzed all the members of the patrol while they mounted their ship that rose rapidly." After about three minutes, when the UFO was no more than a luminous point in the sky, the military regained their movements. In the place where the object had landed, it was observed that the ground was burned. So, yeah, um, that's probably the nicer version of it that doesn't have too many long-lasting effects, but it's not always the case. It certainly sounds like whatever these things were they're superior i mean they, they have yeah. complete control over anything and everything here on earth yes if they if yeah. they wanted i guess absolutely and and i think what's startling about the articles that i've read for this uh episode the, a lot of it it comes from south america but uh, uh some of them some of it does involve uh, you know, Americans and on American soil. Uh, but for the, this next one, we're going to uh, Korea 
on the war front mm-hmm. in 1951. Uh, and in 1987, retired uh, private first class Francis P. Wall confided to John P. Timmerman of the Center for UFO Studies that while stationed in Chorwan, his regiment was attacked by a UFO. Uh, the soldiers were on the outskirts of the town as this bombing raid was flying over. And uh, they were uh, actually just about to approach the village. And that's when they, uh, as the shelling was going on, that's when this UFO just kind of settled over the top of it. It it seemed like it was taking some of the uh, bursts, but it didn't seem to suffer any effects. It was this glowing orange object. And uh, at a certain point, it changed from orange to what they described as, quote-unquote, sickly green. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely that green that you see in emojis where somebody looks sick. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that puke green, I suppose, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so... Wall actually asked his commander for permission to, guess what, fire at it. <laughs> so. They're all they blind. Pers- yeah. Uh, well, I I, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're definitely, they're going to suffer for some health effects here. Uh, so they proceed to open fire. The bullets actually bounced off the craft and they can actually hear the metallic pinging sounds every time that it did. Uh, And this only caused the object to just start swaying back and forth, which is unnerving as hell. I, I, no thank you. (laughs) That's an interesting detail. And immediately my imagination goes kind of crazy. And I'm thinking, does this thing create its own gravitational field? So it's floating Mm -hmm. there. And every time a bullet hits it, it gives it that nudge and that will give it the rock. I don't know. Maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe I'm a little too imaginative, but. Details like that, whenever I hear a small little detail like that, it's it's like a yarn. You pull on it. You're like, what, what's in there? Like, You start thinking about it. You start breaking it down. And sometimes some interesting things come out. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, uh, you know, as this thing starts rocking from side to side, this ray of light shoots down at the, shul- at the, the, the soldiers. And it kind of sweeps across them uh, in these, like, pulsating uh beams of light uh and they weren't able to escape from it at first and this light brought with it a burning and tingling sensation that persisted throughout the entire body forcing the men to run into underground bunkers and (laughs) soon after the object departed at kind of like the steep 45 degree angle and and the men actually had to sit tight for three days before it could be evacuated to a unit hospital, and doctors found that they were suffering from dysentery and an abnormally high white blood cell count. So, you know. Every one of them had the same symptoms then. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Okay. Okay. The uh, the horrors of the Korean War just, just uh, you know, dialed up to 10. No, nobody yeah. needs that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're already at war, and now you have some sort of entity from somewhere else obviously not here that's now messing with you it's that's a lot to swallow yep most of these cases that we're talking about here kind of involve military officials people in official positions um this this case is interesting because the the um the person that owns this property there's 
like a um, a runway on it for some reason. It's a it's it's kind of like a very odd detail. But three years before Almiro's encounter at the hydroelectric dam on August thirteenth, nineteen sixty seven. Inacio de Souza, along with his life, wife Maria, were returning to his farm in Santa Maria when they noticed on the odd landing strip that was part of their property the strange disc-shaped object, approximately 35 meters or about 115 feet in diameter, and three strangers just standing nearby it. Like it, it it's always like this odd display of here's a UFO, here's three people just standing off to the side. They don't look like they're doing anything. They're just kind of there. Yeah, you you hear about that detail a lot. I'm, I'm trying to think of other cases. Uh, Roswell was mentioned uh, at mm-hmm. some point, wasn't it, where there were some sort of beings outside the craft. Uh, yep. uh, Lonnie, I'm trying to remember all these cases. Lonnie, Lonnie Z- Zamora. Zamora, yep. out of, is that New Mexico? I think he saw yep. some some creatures outside the craft. Again, more patterns here. Yep. Yep, uh, very similar patterns, and uh, according to Ignacio, uh, all three figures lacked hair but looked very human-like, and according to Krexel's article, their attitude was very curious. It gave the impression that they were about to play like children, but in silence. When they saw him arrive, they pointed a finger at Ignacio and ran towards him. Can you guess what he did next? <laughs> Please tell me he didn't shoot at them. He did. He, he did. <laughs> okay. Let's see how uh, it works out for this fella. Uh, so that was when Ignacio, he pulled out a shotgun and he shot Ooh. the closest one to him in the head. And that's when this green beam of light shot forth from the UFO and hit Ignacio in the chest, which in turn caused him to fall to the ground. That was when Maria moved in toward her husband, picked up the shotgun, uh, but unfortunately she was too late. All the beings had by then moved back into the craft, and then it rose vertically and shot away, emitting a sound similar to the humming of bees, which I don't ever want to hear that, ever. (laughs) Yeah. That's an unsettling sound. I mean, the real bees is kind of unsettling. I've been on a hike and suddenly come close enough to them to hear them, and yeah, I, I can only imagine not knowing the source and hearing that sound. Yeah, no thank you. Um, hmm. In the wake of the attack, Inacio suffered from nausea, chills, and aches throughout his entire body, and his hands would tremble when he tried to lift them. Three days after the incident, the owner of their property showed up to the house and sent him directly to the hospital. I'm kind of amazed that they didn't just go to the hospital, but hey, you know, if the money's tight, I get it. You know, don't always uh, don't always do that. But uh, doctors found that he had 15-centimeter uh, or 6-inch burns on his chest. And in their diagnosis, the doctors also claimed that he had, uh, like, their diagnosis was that he had swallowed a poison of some kind, but... Um, you know, I don't I don't really know how they came to that conclusion. Uh, but after conducting more tests, the doctors diagnosed Inacio with leukemia. And from then on, his condition began to worse, uh, worsen, and uh, he deteriorated rapidly. 
until he died on October 11th, 1967. Wow. Well, that's unfortunate. But again, yeah. like the Cash Landrum, am I saying that correctly? Uh, the Cash Landrum yep. event, the Burns, I believe one, maybe Betty Cash, am I making this name up? I think maybe she developed some form of cancer as well as a result mm-hmm. of these burns, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the um, the diagnosis was that they had been exposed to radiation of some kind. Uh, yeah, she they suffered for years, uh, developed cancer. Um, I I believe I can't remember if it was Betty or Vicky that died in the nineties, and I think uh, one of them lived a little bit longer. And Colby is still uh, alive today, as far as I know. Uh, yeah. He was actually on the uh, episode of UFO Hunters that they devoted to it back in the uh, 2000s. So, and I think he was in his, like, 30s at that point. Interesting. Again, yeah. these parallels. I mean, it, it, it it's just enough to make you think, is there something, you know, some sort of connection here to all these... Uh, the description of everybody that seems to touch this beam of light, similar symptoms, and they all seem to be that radiation poisoning-type symptom, too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Probably the most infamous case that we'll touch on today uh, occurred in 1952 in the South Florida Everglades. Scoutmaster D.S. Sonny Divergers uh, would emerge from a nearby grove of palmettos with burns from a fireball allegedly released by a UFO. So... This was on the evening of August 19th, and Sonny was driving home with a small group of Boy Scouts when this bright light flashed violently from a nearby trail. And thinking that a plane went down, Sonny armed himself with a flashlight and uh, a machete, and he proceeded into the the nearby grove. And uh, he basically told the boys to remain in the car, but if he wasn't back in 15 minutes, they should run to a nearby farmhouse to... uh, uh, call for help. So Sonny proceeds into the bush for a number of minutes. Uh, he's just like hacking away. And the first thing that he notices is this kind of bad odor in the air. And he also felt like he was being watched. And from above, an intense um, heat descended upon him. And when he instinctively looked up, he found that the stars above him were gone, and there was this, like, solid structure that was hovering above him. And it was a dull black object, about 30 feet in diameter by his estimation. The bottom edge kind of glowed brightly, and he could see this dome atop it as the object was kind of tipping down towards him at an angle. And as the 30-year-old started to back away, a sound like metal grinding on metal permeated the air. And later, Sonny recounted how an intense red light shot out from the object slowly and moved toward him. He quickly covered his eyes, and that's when the light changed into this kind of red mist that uh, like, kind of surrounded his body. And uh, he, at that point, lost consciousness. So uh, in the car, Bobby Ruffing, David Rowan, and Chuck Stevens, they they grew more and more concerned. Uh, you know, from their vantage point in the car, they could see this kind of semicircular ring of white lights. 
descending into the grove, and they also claimed to see this kind of red illuminating light that uh, came through the bushes. And they got really concerned when they saw Sonny's flashlight just making these erratic movements and stuff. So that's when they decided to run to the farmhouse. And it wasn't until an hour later that Sonny Divergers would emerge from the palmettos, and he was kind of waving his machete around, acting all crazy and stuff, and coherently rambling. And um, that was around the time that Palm Beach uh, County Sheriff's Office had accompanied the boys back to the area. And they brought him in, and they questioned him. And they noticed that the hair on his forearms was actually singed. And his skin was kind of burned as well. And he had these kind of like three tiny holes in the, in the hat that he was wearing. Hmm. It wasn't long before Project Blue Book, having just become Project Blue Book the year earlier, got involved with the investigation. So there were soil and grass samples that were sent to the Patel Memorial Institute, which... Uh, when it came to like UFO reports and stuff like that, occasionally they would like outsource them to the Battelle Memorial Institute. They repaired, prepared reports, uh, analyzing them and such. Uh, and in this case, they were sent a bunch of roots uh, and grass uh, and also kind of like soil from the area. And uh, what they found was that the grass actually showed signs of, like, being charred all the way down to the root, but the soil was virtually unchanged. There was, uh, it, it just seemed like normal soil. So they went and they tried to reproduce this, and the only way that they could reproduce this uh, effect on this grass was if the grass had been placed in sand and it had been heated up to about 300 degrees. Wow. Huh, okay. Well, that's, that's yeah. a tough pill to swallow right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And despite these findings, Sonny's character kind of came into question because authorities found out that he had been dishonorably discharged from the Marines for stealing a car. Uh, and he was kind of known to tell tall tales and stuff like that. And still, you know, Edward Rupelt, who was the head of Project Blue Book at the time, he was the lead investigator on this case. Um, uh, he, you know, he he saw Sunny Divergers as being truthful, uh, being sincere, and stuff like that. Um until he published his book, The Report uh, on Unidentified Flying Objects in 1956, in which he said, yeah, he's one of the best hoaxers of all time. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say that. He would almost have to be to get away with yeah. that because he burned his arms and all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the problem is, is that to this day, nobody has an explanation for how the grass could have ended up that way. No explanation at all. Hmm. Um, when I think about that, I, I almost think some sort of electrocution where the grass mm -hmm. is being electrocuted, but the ground obviously is, uh, yeah, I'm not a smart enough person to, to get to the root of that, but that's perplexing for sure. And there's a couple details in there that remind me of other uh, hostile UFOs, I suppose, uh, the Flatwoods Monster uh, mm -hmm. interaction from, uh, I want to say, 52. Um, yep. 
there was all sorts of red mist or glowing mist in that that made people ill as well. It sounds awfully similar. And the uh, what was the one in Washington? Maury, Maury Island incident, I think it was, yep. where a UFO dropped down some glowing balls of stuff and burns a, a boat captain and I think killed a dog even. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, there are definitely similarities between those cases and this one. Um, uh, it's it's kind of one of those ones that uh, was pushed under the rug as much as possible but your lightning theory is is interesting because in one of the uh kind of depictions of what happened to sunny divergers it looks as if the ufo is shooting lightning at him uh oh, so wow. yeah so i i think you're onto something there <laughs> yeah it's 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 almost like the whatever the electricity source is let's say this this beam of light or whatever has uh, I can't remember if this case had a beam of light, but the other one seemed to. That's emitting some sort of electricity that then goes through the grass down to the roots. I, yeah, I don't know. It's, I, I feel like the Mythbusters should should be getting on this or something. Let's let's grow some grass. Let's electrocute the hell out of it, and let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we need Mythbusters on this pronto. Get them back together. Get them in a room. Uh, let's get this figured out. Uh, so, interestingly enough, in the 1960s, there are a couple of cases in which children in the United States were burned by UFOs. And, okay. uh, yeah, in, in the earliest case that I could find here was 1964, uh, and this was in New Mexico. At around 4 p.m. on June 2nd of that year, Charlie Davis was... He was standing outside of the back door of, at his grandmother's house, and she was in the process of cutting cake for their lunch when uh, she saw this kind of uh, a long, elongated metal object descend and hover above Charles. Um, this object, it was shaped like a top, and it shot this kind of fire and soot down from underneath it. And this young boy, he shut his eyes tight and... Uh, you know, she could see his hair standing on end, and before the object departed, um, Mrs. Smith, the grandmother, ran to him and, you know, held him in her arms, and she found that his ears were intensely red, and his face had swelled up considerably. Uh, he was in the hospital for five days, wow. where he was treated for burns, uh, and, you know, for this intense swelling... Uh, to the point where, like, uh, they were saying, it, it kind of like, um, I think it was as bad as, like, you see with some, you know, uh, people who are in car accidents. Um, intense face swelling. Mm -hmm. And uh, according to Charles, he actually felt no pain during any of this, which is weird. That's the Very best way weird. to experience it, though. I mean, yes. if you're going to be badly deformed by an experience, then at least go through it painless. Yes, absolutely. Uh, four years later, in March on March 19th, 1968, 12-year-old Gregory Wells was walking home from his grandparents' house, which is just, like, down the road a little bit, uh, at about 8.30 p.m., and he headed for home. He just uh, he lived just outside of uh, Bealsville, Ohio, in a trailer with his parents. Uh, and Wells was actually carrying a large jug of insulated water 
because uh, their water line had actually broken that winter and nobody had come out to replace it yet, which, you know, man, mm, like, rough. towns, get on this shit. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have indoor plumbing in Ohio now, I, I promise you. Are you sure? Well, Are you sure? I haven't been there in a few years, but last time I was in Ohio, we had indoor, indoor plumbing over there. <laughs> That's good to hear. Good to hear. Um, and I'm even in the southeastern part of the state where I'm from, so that's you know that's where the jokes come from in that part of the state. <laughs> <laughs> so near the doorstep of uh, to the trailer, Wells looked over his right shoulder where a large red football-shaped object was hovering above some trees, you know, just across the highway, and it made a noise uh, similar to the noise of like a generator running. And a tube of some kind started to come out of the bottom of the craft, which was pointed directly at Jeffrey. So the boy ran for the door, but before he could get there, he was struck in the back by a red flash of light that knocked him to the ground. His jacket was now completely on fire, and, you know, he was screaming out. His mother and his grandmother had heard the commotion, ran outside, and they instinctively saw this object. It was the first thing that they looked at. Um, but they both just kind of put it out of their mind so that they could go aid Gregory. Uh, his mother tried to pour the jug of water onto him, but was having a difficult time. So uh, Gregory just kind of managed to rip the jacket off of him. And... Uh, he suffered uh, second-degree burns on his shoulder, back, and arms. And, um, you know, the doctors didn't really treat it with much other than Vaseline. But uh, during the investigation of the case, they learned that Gregory had seen, like, a similar object two days earlier. And a woman named Janet Spears had observed the same object uh, that Jeffrey did. On the day he was attacked between 9 and 9.15 p.m. So we've got hmm. some kind of corroboration um, yeah. with with this stuff. And it's it's but, kind of funny that most of the other witnesses shot at the UFO and this UFO shot at the witness. Yeah. yeah. We, we completely flipped it. But that's yep. incredible. I mean, imagine being – how old did you say he was? He was 12? Yeah, somewhere around there. You know, imagine yep. being that age, you know, you're outside playing and, and suddenly you're attacked by some floating – thing you can't even identify like man that's I, I keep saying it but that's another tough tough pill to swallow i mean they all are honestly to, to hear the story and accept it as truth is i mean it's a tough thing to do because it's a wild claim not saying these people are making any of this up but uh, and then to be in that experience like i couldn't imagine going through anything like that no i don't even want to i don't even want to imagine that it's living with the trauma of being burned by a ufo with some weird beam of of light that it shot forth uh yeah it's i'm just uneasy all over the place thinking about you would feel it. like you you couldn't be safe anywhere i mean exactly if that happened in your own in your own yard imagine going anywhere and, and thinking you're safe it's it's going to change your your outlook on on the world for the rest of your life i imagine yeah uh exactly like do you fear that night sky uh, or, you know, sky at all? Like, uh, in, in the way that certain abduction witnesses 
uh, fears certain stretches of road or mm-hmm. fear, uh, you know, driving at a certain time of night or something like that. Yeah, that 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 definitely has to stick with, uh, you know, a kid. Poor guy. Uh, for the rest of their life. But yeah. um, so, Derek, you were kind enough to bring over some phone calls that you had received uh, for Monsters Among Us. Um, for those who are not familiar with your podcast, could you just give us a brief summary of what you do over at Monsters Among Us? Sure, sure. Yeah, basically it's a call-in show about uh, the paranormal. It could be anything from ghosts, doppelgangers, to obviously UFOs, Bigfoot, whatever is strange and unusual, we, we field it. Uh, but mine's a little different. Uh, I don't interview any of the subjects. They call in, they leave their story in the form of a voicemail. I edit the thing down real smooth, and, and we just put a show together. We explore other options. That's why I do a lot of comparing, like, oh, this reminds me of this case or this case, because I do that all all the time on the show where uh, somebody will, will report something that just seems so off the wall, and then I'll start digging, and I'll find three or four instances over you know a 20-year period where the exact same thing has happened in the exact same spot, and we just kind of dig and dig and dig until we get some of these details uh, you know, unearthed. And you'd be you'd be surprised how often these calls match up with with other incidents that have taken place in history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, the first uh, call is, is from a, a woman named Chloe in Texas, and uh, we're gonna play it for you right now. Hi, Derek. Uh, this is Chloe from Texas. Don't really want to say the town because I'm a substitute teacher here and. I don't want anybody thinking I'm loony, but, um, so a couple years back, I, uh, was driving to a friend's house, you know, just kind of taking my time driving around. I live in a small town, so sometimes we just cruise the roads. There's not a whole lot to do out here, but, um, I'm driving and it's not like I'm in the middle of nowhere. You know, we, our town has about a thousand people in it, but, um, you know, it's, it's not super rural. It's, it's suburbs. And uh, as I'm driving, it's a familiar street, street I used to live on when I was a kid. I look up, up above this old house, I see these three orange lights. And they weren't incandescent, like street lights or bright, bright orange, like LEDs. They they glowed like, like firelight, almost, like embers. And I'm looking at these lights, and, you know, it's late November, early December, about... It's 2016, you know, but right around Christmas time, so I'm thinking, oh, you know, maybe some kid got an early Christmas present and he's flying a drone or something like that. I'm looking at these lights, and they're pretty close together, so it looks like whatever they're, whatever object they're on the bottom of can't be more than, you know, two or three feet across. And then out of nowhere, they spread out. They just kind of shoot out into a triangular formation, and suddenly this thing is... I... I don't know. It's, you know, it, it's got to be a hundred feet across. It's swallowing the sky over this house and it's just black. You can't see the, see the stars behind it, you know, and it's pretty clear out here. So you can see, you can see all the stars at night. There's not a lot of light pollution, but you couldn't see any of the stars behind whatever these lights were. And so I'm looking at it and I'm kind of creeping along beside it, you know, having my Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> close encounters moment thinking I'm going to get a sunburn on half of my face in any moment. And uh, I'm looking up at it thinking, surely I'm not looking at a UFO. Surely I'm not, you know, 
but I, I get this feeling that I don't know, like it's it's looking back at me, you know, and all the hair on my arm stands up and it feels like staticky and and it was just so quiet and still none of the birds or or locusts or crickets are making any sound anymore. And I'm following it and it it's just kind of hovering. So I'm driving along beside it. It's just kind of hovering. And then it starts creeping along beside my car and just keeping pace with me, you know? It's just keeping pace. And at this point, I'm getting pretty freaked out and thinking, you know, I I better go ahead and get onto my friend's house. And But I can't stop looking at it. And I can't shake the feeling that it's looking back at me, you know? And so... um. I followed it for probably a hundred yards, just cruising. We were going northbound on the street. And then all of a sudden it just veers off and heads off towards the east. And I watched it until I couldn't see it anymore. It just kind of shrunk off into the horizon. And I I never told anybody about it. I just went on to my friend's house. And when she asked why I was late, I told her I had to go home because I forgot something. But... um. Yeah, it was weird. After that, I had headaches for a while, just out of nowhere, like right behind my right eyebrow. And I, I don't know. It sounds crazy, but I couldn't shake the feeling that maybe I'd really seen something. Anyways, I love the show. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm sure I'll be calling back because this kind of crazy stuff seems to find me. But um, love what you're doing and keep it up. Thanks. Derek, how would you feel if the UFO just started following you in your car? <laughs> I mean, I hear about it all the time. And yeah, when when you when you're in, in your own, <laughs> when you're in your own office and you're listening to these calls, uh, you picture it and you're like, okay, well, that's spooky, that's scary. But then you're out driving somewhere in some God's country somewhere out in a deserted road, and then that thought comes across your mind. It's a completely different scenario, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to just to imagine something like that that has the ability to zip around wherever it wants to suddenly notices you and you're in a car. I mean, you're limited to 80, 90, 100 miles an hour, whatever it is. You feel like an insect. Uh, I got to imagine mm-hmm. you, you feel exposed. You feel like there's nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. And when that thing starts trailing you, that thing starts pacing with you, I can only imagine the amount of anxiety. And you can hear it in the caller's voice, too, when she describes it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one thing that she she said is that, you know, toward her uh, right eyebrow, she started mm-hmm. to receive these kind of headaches. And, and one thing that I found kind of, like, uh, relatable in this case is that um, as someone who works in the healthcare industry and who has to get covid tests weekly uh just to work there it kind of reminded me of uh during the beginning of the pandemic when uh you know we started to receive those weekly we we, i'd get the same kind of pain uh in the same kind of area like uh it it generally lasted for you know a few hours but Mm. it's it's relatable to it, it makes you wonder if if uh you know as in some uh, abduction cases if this is an abduction case which she it, it seems to be like something that she's kind of alluding to because she did claim that she showed up to her friend's house a little bit late yeah so you know 
if uh, if that is the case, then uh, you know maybe something was done to the sinuses. Uh, that it, it it's relatable in that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I can't pinpoint an exact case, but I remember somebody having something uh, extracted from their nose that they thought was implanted during uh, an alien abduction. And mm, yeah. I, I, man, I wish I could remember the details. I watch so much stuff and I read so much stuff. I can't keep it all straight. But somebody was discussing something where they had had some sort of anomaly in the, the I mean, it was basically up in their sinuses and they went to the doctor and they had it removed and it was some foreign object that they couldn't identify that was was actually up there. So when you said that, all the wheels start rolling again and you're dead on, you know, maybe the missing time, uh, the way the encounter starts out, you know, the, the UFO notices her and seems to go toward her. You hear that all the time. I mean, that's uh, Betty and Barney Hill. I think that's how that started out. So uh, yep. the signs are all there. So you might be onto something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I wish I wasn't because that is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's it's unfortunate. So uh, the, the next uh, uh, call we got here is, is from Ray in Northeast Ohio. And uh, uh, we're going to play that for you now. Hey, Derek. This is Ray up here in Northeast Ohio. Back in 1980, I get a call from my buddy John, dude I went to school with. He says, hey, I'm going out to Debbie's after supper. Do you want to go? I said, yeah. Debbie lived right across, the, right across the Pennsylvania border. So we get out there and uh, hanging out with Debbie a few hours, you know, playing records, catching up with her. And uh, we all, everybody had to get up for work in the morning, so we probably left there probably before 10. And John's driving down the road, and he uh, makes a right-hand turn. And I says, uh, hey, man, uh, you took the wrong street. He says, oh, no, this is a shortcut. Now, some of these roads in rural Pennsylvania, it's, it's just a dirt road cut through the forest. There's no lights, there's no street lights, there's no sidewalk, you know. And uh, this road happened to have, there's a, a field off to the left-hand side. Probably about 100 feet of field, and then there's the woods. So we get about a quarter mile down this road, and we both see two lights right above the trees just hanging there. Look like two car headlights about 12 feet apart just floating above the trees. And if I remember right, I think I made a comment like, what are these idiots doing in a helicopter out here at 10 o'clock at night, you know? Well, John drove up a lot closer and rolled the window down, and there was no no helicopter noise. There was, there was no noise at all. And... He stopped the car, and he kept the motor running, and he put it in park. And we're watching these lights, and I swear it couldn't have been three seconds after he stopped the car. These lights started drifting towards us real slow, but they're coming towards us. And, man, I got a bad feeling. I felt like, I felt like prey. Yeah, I felt like a rabbit being hunted. And I told John, maybe we ought to just, you know, get out of here. He says, let's check it out for a minute. So we're watching the lights. They're coming closer. By this time, they're right at the tree line. You know, there's maybe 100 feet left. 
and uh, they're still coming closer, and I'm starting to get panicked. And I says, come on, man, we we got to go. Let's f- forget about this. Let's get out of here. He said, relax, man. Let's check it out. Dude, as cool as a cucumber. And uh, these lights are, they're just still, they're coming towards us real slow, but they're heading our way. And, man, I started getting panicked. I was pounding on the dashboard with my fist. I'm saying, please, John, we got to go. We got to get out of here. Finally, he just put that car in drive and put his foot in it. And uh, he was flying down this dirt road, hitting those potholes. The car is bottoming out on its shocks. I think that's probably the fastest I've ever been in a car at that time. And he kept saying, are they following us? I stuck my head out the window, and I I said, yeah, they're, they're following us. And by this time, he was panicked. The road came to a T, so there's a stop sign. John's skidding into this turn and is making making the turn, and a green beam of light came down to the ground right to the left-hand side of the car. And after that, we don't remember the drive home. I mean, down down into the Shenango Valley and then up into Ohio, the only thing I remember is walking into my parents' house and they're watching TV in the living room. And I walked in and said, we saw a UFO. And I forgot about this for years. Now, how the hell could I forget about the, the scariest night of my life? How could I just forget about that? You know, it makes no sense. But that's what happened, man. And... Uh, I've seen those lights one other time way out in a, in a country road in Ohio, but I was about a mile away, and I just got the hell out of there. I wasn't going to wait around. That's it, brother, so uh, keep up the good work, man. Later. The way that he describes, like, he's being hunted is yeah. it's eerie, it's terrifying. Uh, there are allusions to... An abduction event, and what's interesting in, in what we see in abduction events is, um, especially if somebody's driving, they will describe how they make an unusual turn, and they are brought closer to like an object or or something like that. And in this case, we this is what's going on mm-hmm. in a way. We have. John, he's making this mysterious turn, uh, you know, Ray's telling him, no, man, this isn't the way we go to do this. Uh, and it's like, oh, it's it's a it's a back road shortcut. Don't worry about it. And um, yeah, this this story terrified the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's from, again from my home state of Ohio, and I've received a lot of calls lately from especially the northeast part of the state about uh, black triangles, you know, the delta, the delta shape. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's what he's describing here or not, but uh, there's been a lot of activity there in the past, I'd say, four or five years for some reason. Uh, so it doesn't come to any surprise to me that this guy is in that area and, and realizing this stuff. And also, I, I got to point out, how unfortunate for him to be 
poor Ray. Uh, he's in this car. He's not driving. He's terrified. He has no control yeah. over whether they leave or not. I mean, he could step out of the car, but that's an even worse idea, I think, than staying in the car. Um, and, and I can't help but feel a little guilty because if I were the one driving, I probably would have done the same thing or or maybe even drove, driven closer to it because I want to know. I want to know what's going on. Like, forget the guy next to me. I, I, want, I want these answers. So, yeah. Uh, it could be a tricky situation. Yeah, there's an interesting parallel to a case that I covered on our Year of the Humanoids uh, episode in which we talked about the Year of the Humanoids report. And in France, there were these guys that ended up going up this mountain because their friend basically told them that they had seen a UFO on this mountain. They go up there and they find this like huge hulking figure that starts walking down everybody you know uh decides to get their vehicles and 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 try and get away and two of the witnesses in in this case one of whom you know was trying to get out of there the other of whom was just terrified right next to him the witness that was driving stopped and backed up <laughs> because he literally wanted to ask the beings if they were good or if they were bad. <laughs> and uh, does this like and and you know this being uh, had uh, there were other beings that joined it as they were on as they were chasing this car down. They had eventually stopped, and that's when the driver, a guy named Elaine Laka, he decided to just drive backwards up the mountain, stopped the car in front of these beings, got out and basically asked them, are you good or are you bad? And these beings turned to each other and they started conversing in a language he didn't understand. And then they turned back around and decided to pursue him again. <laughs> he should have shot at him. I mean, yeah, it's, it's in the exactly. handbook. We, we all know what it is. To do. <laughs> wow. It is. Yeah. It's, that's, uh, it's sim- definitely similar to, to Ray's experience. Uh, mm-hmm. I think of Travis Walton, too. I mean, a little bit of the reverse. Yeah. Uh, he jumped out of the vehicle, but they couldn't exactly leave him there. Uh, right. so, you, so you're kind of stuck in that situation again with, with uh, somebody being at fault, a human being being at fault for you being there. Uh, interesting stuff. Uh, I don't know which – who you should be more angry with, the intruders or the, the person basically holding you hostage and making you uh, sit in their path. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh you know, I, I'm sure words were had later that night. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't blame them uh, whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me either. Spooky uh, stuff, though. I love that. I love that call. Right? You know, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, the final one we ha- we have here is uh, from Henry in San Diego, uh, and we're going to play that all for you now. Hello, Derek. My name is Henry. I'm from San Diego, California. This is for your military special that you were calling out for. Actually, this is a story I've been intending to tell you for a long time. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. But I think now is a perfect time to tell this story. I've told this story to many friends, and I've told this story many, many times. So um, this is a story you may be familiar with, but I don't think you've ever heard it from this angle, or this is a different angle if you want to put it that way. So it's kind of a long story, um, so I'll just get right into it. In 2004, I was uh, in the United States Marine Corps, and I was 
part of a Marine fighter attack unit. I won't give any unit numbers or give any names, so just to keep people's privacy intact. Um, so, like I said, in 2004, I went on a training detachment on the USS Nimitz. So, around that time, what a fighter attack squadron will do, along with the Navy, of course, is we go out to sea about maybe 100 miles, maybe more, uh, to an area of ocean that is pretty uh, quiet. Basically, there shouldn't be anything out there. Um, there shouldn't be any other civilian aircraft or civilian boats of any kind, except for the uh, naval carrier group, which consists of many boats. I won't go into details, but... Um, yeah, so that's where we were. And like I said, it was in, around November of 2004. And the reason I remember that is because it was right around Thanksgiving. So what uh, was going on there was uh, we were just trying to get all the training done before deploying in the next few months. Um, that way we're we were ready to go. So what ended up happening is we went out, we were doing, um, I'm not a pilot, I'm a maintainer, just to make that clear. We were out in the ocean, and of course, uh, aircraft are going out and coming in, and we're in charge of securing them when they come back in and fueling them, doing maintenance, whatever whatever the jets require, and pilots will let us know. Well, during that time, there was a rumor going around that pilots had seen a UFO. Um, and so the rumor, just like all rumors, they spread, especially in a small area like an aircraft carrier. They they spread pretty quickly. It was it was being talked about that, hey, our pilots saw this or somebody saw that. And uh, there's a schedule of flights uh, that are generally um, put out for what flights are going for that day and night. And they put like a little comic on there. And and it's usually like it was, it was just something funny just to make, you know, you know, make a little light of, you know, everyday serious training um, just to put people on small faces. So. Uh, the comics for like an entire week was revolved around aliens and UFOs. And on, on an aircraft carrier, there's TVs in, in a lot of areas and they have, they show a lot of training videos and that's how the commanding officer will, um, of the boat, um, kind of get his word out to people and it shows information. And one of those channels is just for movies. So when you have time off, you can kind of relax and, and just watch movies and the entire week they're playing alien movies. So, um, back to the, back to the original story, um, about this rumor about UFOs, I didn't believe it. I thought it was like whatever everybody's talking about. Yeah, you know, our pilot saw UFOs. I was like, yeah, right, whatever. Um, I just didn't believe it. I just figured it was a rumor just like anything else. Um, fast forward uh, right before Thanksgiving that week prior. <clears throat> we go down into the hangar bay and uh, we have a formation, and anybody that's been in the military understands what a formation is. The whole unit gets together, stands in a formation, and of course, uh, when when word is passed that well, when when uh, once once everybody's assembled, they call fallout, and then everybody falls out around uh, the squadron's commanding officer for a what they call a quote unquote school circle. Again, military folks will know what I'm talking about, and it's kind of like a, a, a quick one on one, really casual. Um, conversation with a commanding officer and he tells us, hey, this is what's going on and this is what the plan uh, is for the next uh, few weeks, few months, so on and so forth. So, of course, he does this and when the commanding officer is, is done talking, he will always ask, does anyone have any questions? 
And generally, no one has questions for the commanding officer. No one wants to ask the CEO, hey, you know, what's going on? No one ever does. You always ask your lower ranking. You don't want to skip chain of command and go straight to the CEO. But lo and behold, there was this young Marine that raised his hand and and asked the CEO, sir, hey, uh, is it true about the UFOs? Well, we all kind of laughed nervously and kind of chuckled, but we didn't think it was a very appropriate question to ask our commanding officer that uh, we kind of everybody's kind of looking at each other like who is this kid um somebody slap him you know oh my god i can't believe you just asked the ceo about ufos so um once the the chuckling kind of died down the ceo kind of smiled and he kind of looked at everybody nodded his head and then he says i'll tell you what um i i don't know what it was but i'll tell you what i saw because i was flying on a night that this thing appeared and that's when everybody was like, wait, what? What What did he just say? So our CEO starts telling the story that's about when he, he so, so anyway, so he was flying out there, him, some of our other aircraft, uh, along with other naval aircraft, um, doing training, flight training, whatever, at night. Um, so it was night operations out in the middle, you know, out in the Pacific somewhere off the coast of California. <clears throat> and... Um, the the aircraft carrier and of course uh, another uh, car- another boat that's part of our carrier air group uh, spots something. They spot something on radar and and they call into these aircraft that are in the air to intercept the quote unquote bogey. So they go they go to this this spot. They're like, okay, this is real. This is no longer training. This is a real world um, event. This is this is real stuff. Now, granted, they're not they don't have weapons on them. They're just doing training. But they decide to to go to this area that they've been instructed to go, so to intercept this quote unquote bogey. So when they get to this area, um, sure enough, they see something flying low over the water. Um, so and it's it's what they describe as tic tac shaped um, oval light, about the size of a uh, an aircraft, a fighter jet, I guess. But it's oval. It's just it's not huge, but it's not small either. Uh, flying just just over the the surface of the water, and it's, they know it's flying because it's moving too fast to be a a boat, but it's it's still moving slow for an aircraft. Uh, they see it. Obviously, the the radar on the boat sees it, and the aircraft radar sees it. And of course, they have visual, and this is at night, so it really stands out. Um, so they confirm. They try to get low. Uh, they they they're, they're um, talking back to the boat, and and uh yeah so they see this thing and they're just trying to figure out what it is and they're trying to confirm can you confirm what this is and they're like no we don't know what it is it's tic tac shaped light oval shape tic tac shaped so they want more details they want them to get closer well when they fly low to the water they they try to get a closer look this thing immediately shoots up to about ten thousand feet and a matter of a second, maybe less, like a blink of an eye. And of course they confirm this and it's just, it's instantaneous. There's no aircraft that we know of that can do this. So they're describing this back to operations on the carrier. They get back up to altitude and try to fly wing off of this thing. And this thing is just moving like crazy. It's going back and forth. It's maneuvering ways that they can't um, keep up with and their jets. I mean, these are, they're flying fighter jets and they can't keep up with this thing. So, uh, at, at, at times it, it moves in ways in that they just can't keep up. And, and finally it settles, uh, between 10, 15,000 feet. Maybe I, I don't remember cause it's been so long since 
since the story uh, was told to us by our CEO, but it, it kind of settled out and stopped moving around. So at this point, um, again, they see it visual, visually, radar sees it, boat radar sees it. It's there. It's not giving any kind of transponder, no identification. No one knows what it is. So they try to fly wing off it, box it in aircraft to the left, aircraft to the right, above and front, below, behind it, and kind of box it in from the air as best they can and try to fly wing off of it. And as you've, if you've ever seen fighter jets like the Blue Angels or Thunderbirds or, or anything, you know that those, these aircraft can fly pretty close to each other. So the, th- these jets try to close in and try to get a better, better description. And there's just no, there's no detail to this thing. It's an oval-shaped light, tic-tac-shaped as, as it's described. It has no details, no doors, no wings. Uh, they don't know what it could be made of. It looks like it's just made of light. And it's moving and, and it's not giving off any kind of signature that an aircraft would. So again, they're describing this back and they can't make heads or tails of it. And no sooner than that happened, than they get close to it, it shoots straight up into the stars and it's gone instantaneously like it was never there. They lose it. They lose visual. They lose radar signature. It's gone. Now, they come back. Um, they debrief, whatever. Um, there's video of this. Um, they have uh, every, every training mission has video. So they, they have this video. Fast forward um, to today really and uh, I was telling the story to uh, another pilot I still work with the military and work very closely with uh, fighter pilots and he just happened to know uh, some of the guys that were involved in that and they at the time they said like they were they were kind of laughing and joking about it like watch some men in black show up and, and take our tapes um, just joking and and no kidding uh, an aircraft um came on board what they call a cod um it's like a little prop aircraft uh, that the navy has um they can fly people on and off ship comes on board with basically these feds these government guys in suits and they come in they want to see these videos and they pretty much take all the videos they can find of this thing get back on the on this aircraft and leave the carrier and they're, they're gone no questions nobody questions them and it just they just take it. It's, it's very, very strange because whatever credentials they showed, even the most highest ranking people on the carrier, they, they just kind of put their hands up and just let them do whatever. And they took those videos. And, and it's, it's very, very odd. Um, today, I'm sure you've heard of the, the Tic Tac UFO off the Nimitz. If you haven't, you can Google it. Um, there's, there's all kinds. There's news articles. There's, there's an entire documentary on this stuff. Um, and, and other talk shows have, have talked about this, but it's a it's a thing. It happened, and I've been telling this story since 2004. Some people believe me, some people didn't. And the last couple of years, and that this thing has kind of become big now. Uh, I can pretty much say, hey, look, I told you so. I've been telling the story since then, and now it's really come to light. Uh, so. Uh, I know this was a long-winded story, and hopefully you can use it. Maybe you can edit it and, and break it down, but um, I appreciate it. appreciate you letting me call in. I love the show. Keep it up, and I can't wait to hear more stories from everyone else. I got a few more to tell, most of them secondhand, but I do have a couple firsthand. So keep up the great work, and uh, look forward to listening to the next episode. Thanks. Bye.
I think what's interesting here is that you you have um you know this guy talking about how you know this this is basically the the tic tac object the tic tac story mm-hmm. it's out in the same area it's it seems to be with a different uh i'm assuming different fighter group or something like that but alluding to the fact that um you know there was more than one group seeing these objects out of maneuvers in 2004 and you know jokingly like oh the men in black are gonna come and 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 (laughs) take your video and then it actually happens (laughs) yeah yeah i mean are they surprised the kind of thing happens all the time i brought up the uh, maury island thing i think that was the first men in black uh, yep. Again, one of these con- people having contact with these craft or you're just experiencing them and then these guys show up. Th- those yeah. things creep me out. Men in black, because you have that human element. I don't, I don't know if they're human or not, but they at least appear to be human. And anytime you apply that human element, it just scares the hell out of me even more because I don't, I don't trust people. <laughs> yeah. I trust yeah, aliens exactly. more than I trust people, maybe. Exactly. You know, uh the intentions may not be totally clear, but you know that there are intentions, and you know yeah. that if you fire bullets at them, it's not going to go well for you, ever. Yeah. Like, ever. So, that's that's the big lesson of this episode, folks. Do not fire at the UFOs. Do not or, fire at the, the aliens. in black, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh it will not end well for you. Uh, you will suffer debilitating effects. Uh, hopefully you do not die like Ignacio did. But mm-hmm. just just don't shoot at the UFOs, and I, and I think you'll be fine. Uh, and, you know, maybe turn a blind eye. And also don't, don't hamstring no your friend. Intended, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and and don't hamstring your friend into a situation they don't want to be in, especially if you're just curious about the the beings that are pursuing your car or something. Unless like that. you're going to get answers, in which case I can get behind that completely. Yeah, yeah, d- d- totally. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll sacrifice one guy for a couple answers, I think. Yeah, no, that's that's totally fine. Uh, you know, they'll be fine in the end, hopefully. We we only had one casualty this episode, so that's pretty uh, good. Yeah, I think that is pretty good on a you know episode that we don't normally have casualties. But again, you know, you you play with those numbers, you play with uh, that kind of heat, and uh, sometimes you get burned. Sometimes you shoot you get at burned. things you shouldn't, and bad things happen. That's that's absolutely right. So. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for coming of on the course, podcast. Rob, thank you. Uh, so, where can people keep up with what you're doing with Monsters Among Us and and all the stuff that you got going on? Where and where and what is the number that people can call in with their stories? Sure, sure. You can find Monsters Among Us. It's released every Thursday uh, anywhere you find a podcast or even on YouTube. Uh, you can catch us there. And if you do have a story you'd like to report, you can call my hotline at one eight 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 six zero eight night. That's toll free across the country, and uh, you can shoot me an email. Just go to my website, monstersamonguspodcast dot com. And as you alluded to in the beginning of the podcast, there we're we're doing a film. Uh, we're basically investigating this hotspot area that we found down here in Southern California called the Borrego Triangle that's full of all sorts of UFO activity, ghostly activity, and there's even a desert Sasquatch that calls the park down their home. So uh, I don't have a release date for that yet, but we're looking at late spring, early summer for that one. Excellent. 
Excellent. Because uh, I know that uh, COVID kind of set you back a little bit. Oh, but did, yeah. Uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, you guys are on top of it, and I can't wait for it to come out. So uh, y'all have that to look forward to. Keep an eye out for it. You know, follow Derek. He'll keep you all updated with that. And as for the Our Strange Guys podcast, you can find us on most podcasting apps. And if you'd like to help us out, please leave a rating and review on the platforms that allow it. And if you want to support us monetarily, head on over to patreon.com slash your UFO guy, where for $3 a month, you get the early release of episodes like this and bonus episodes. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO as the theme for this podcast. And special thanks to Megan Lagerberg for our logo and to the great Desdemona for our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or floating over your nearby dam in Brazil. In gray, we trust. Yeah.